0: a meeting of the masters of mastication turn your attention as they delve deep into all things lifting and more this is peak speed and we're
1: back with exciting news yes we are now professional we have a sponsor for the show which is awesome for us but even more awesome for you indeed because who doesn't love a sweet sweet
0: online shopping discount code and in this case it's an online shopping discount code that gets you delicious coffee delivered to your doorstep from our good friends prism coffee who are four canberra lads who i've known for a while uh who've all worked in and around the specialty coffee industry for some time now and now uh, out on their own they've got a roaster they're roasting beans uh, and just generally kicking ass with delicious coffee
1: So, John, how do the people get this amazing discount you speak of?
0: Go to their website, which is prismcoffee.com.au. Pick from the couple of different blends and some single origins that they've got. You can get it ground. You can get it in whole beans if you prefer to grind your own. They've got all of the options. Uh, And then you use the code peakspeakcoffee in the discount bit of the shopping cart. And, uh... You'll get a sneaky 10% off and it'll rock up on your doorstep in some amount of time. I don't remember exactly what it is, but I think they express post everything. So hopefully, quickly.
1: Perfect. Amazing. Well, that's it. Without further ado, here's the episode. Yeah. Presented by Thomas Lilly and John Sheridan. Baby Cry in the background, not included. We are back. We are
0: recording. We are live. (laughs) coming to you live from two offices across australia exactly
1: how are you my friend i'm good man life is
0: pretty good uh yeah no major complaints i mean one of my cars died but i'm also looking at buying a new car so
1: that's just going to speed up that process amazing uh obviously on your gym salary you are buying a ferrari (laughs) Uh, two actually one
0: like one in red for everyday driving one in black for when i want to be a bit more discreet obviously um yeah and i'm just gonna go into my storage shed and dig out my piles of cash and just pay it in a backpack full of cash uh 50 cent style um so yeah it's good it's gonna be sick Mm. uh yeah what's happening with you how are you
1: not much. I am uh, sitting here, highly caffeinated. Thank you to oh, Prism what Coffee a segue. Co. Oh.
0: Segue right. our sponsor. Yeah.
1: Peakspeak Te- Coffee, 10% off.
0: Yes. Tell us about your uh, new coffee machine. You've discovered the wonders of not using pods in your house like a scumbag.
1: That's right. I am. Uh, I was going to say I'm no longer a scumbag, but that'd be a lie. So I'm less. That a would be scumbag. a blatant
0: lie. We'd all call you on that.
1: I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, a more cultured scumbag. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I purchased a coffee machine after our discussion last time, and I'm slowly working the ins and outs of it. As coffees are getting more and more consistent. That's and, the key. Uh, less looking like a flow of diarrhea coming out. Yeah, uh, like and some dirty water with some foam on top. Yeah, or mostly foam, or, or nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, fine. I'm finding the perfect blend. I'm looking forward to getting some prism beans and playing yep. around with my grinder that came with the coffee machine.
0: Yeah, it's it's a different world when you can start to um play with grind size and really end up getting it quite dialed in. That's where having a good like a set of uh, 0.1 gram scales will definitely make a difference as yeah. well because you can be a lot more precise about it. I really suck at the milk steaming thing. That's just practice, man. Watch a couple of YouTube videos. Yeah. It's not super complex. Once you get a feel for it, and you get a feel for like the pressure that your machine puts out, uh, you'll get you'll be able to dial it in pretty quickly. Like I am, um, I used my dad's machine the other day. Uh, which is just like a bit better than mine, mm. and the milk steaming was just a bit different. Like I, it took me two goes to get it right because I was just sort of doing it the way I would do it on my machine. Yeah. So there's definitely an element of um, of machine to machine pressure differences and stuff like that. But mm. I, again, it's it's not that complex. This is the thing that fascinates me about something like coffee, is that if you just care a little bit. And you think a little bit about what you're doing. It's really not that hard to make pretty good coffee. Mm. And yet so many people fuck it up so badly. Uh, and it infuriates me. Like just <laughs> just care a little bit about what you're doing and produce an okay product instead of just doing like not caring at all, slapping a bunch of shit in a machine and hoping for the best.
1: You know what though, John? People can only do the best with the knowledge and information and the skill that they have. And so our assumption has to be that they are doing their best. Because I would say the same thing about something like squatting. It's like, why are you doing it that way when you could be doing it this way? It's like, we have to appreciate that not everyone has that skill and that knowledge. No,
0: and I do appreciate that. And I wish I could also have a podcast that teaches people about coffee. But I don't know enough about coffee to have that podcast. So here we are talking about powerlifting
1: instead. But... Go get some coffee from our friends okay. at PRISM. We'll get Aaron Aaron, Simon, Dean McKillop on for beanspeak. <laughs> <laughs> They're two nerdiest nerdi- coffee it,
0: people I know. Oh, man, I'll just get the PRISM boys to come in and yeah. talk coffee because, you know, Aaron knows what he's talking about, but he's also going to have to sit six feet from the, mic- the microphone because his arms are so bloody long. <laughs> anyway, uh, that's enough ragging on our friends. Um, we're talking about powerlifting-related things today. Are we? Which is a surprise, given this is a powerlifting podcast. Definitely. What are we talking about? Uh, I want to talk about like motor control, motor learning, skill acquisition <laughs> stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has been an area of an area of stuff. I don't know. I don't know what <laughs> word I was going to use there. Um, but it's well, you got an area. you
1: got inspired by something you listened to. Right? Yeah, that's that's what I was
0: about to say. I've been doing a lot of reading and, and watching of stuff uh, after watching a lecture that friend of the
1: show Quinn Henock. Uh, from clinical athlete put up uh featured guest. go back in time episode number eight or something yeah i I do want to
0: actually get him on and talk about more about motor learning stuff because i think he just knows more than i do and it'd be an interesting conversation um but he put up a lecture on his like facebook and stuff that uh is like one of the lectures he does in his clinical athlete forum i think and um it was free for a a week or so. And I ended up watching it like two or three times because I watched it the first time and was like, oh, that all kind of makes sense to me. And it's an interesting take on things. And, you know, Mm. he showed some of the actual science, which I think sometimes uh, I certainly am guilty of uh, not giving enough credit to the research area. Um, So it was interesting to see some of the science that he talked about with... Uh, queuing and things like that, and that got me into doing some more reading and, and watching of stuff and um, thinking, which is you know an important part of what it is that we do. And so, yeah, I wanted to to talk to you about it, yeah, for sure. Where do you um, want to start?
1: Well, I've, so, I've yet to, to watch the lecture, but I will, yes. Um, and uh, from what we were talking about before, I think I can offer some uh, sort of anecdotal sort of stuff, but uh, yeah, we need a starting point.
0: Yeah, so we've talked before about the uh, the model I've used to describe like skill acquisition and and learning and the, the process that goes into that uh, is like a four-stage model that I don't remember who uh, sort of originated it, but it came out of uh, like developmental psychology in the 60s and 70s. And a lot of the motor learning stuff, motor control stuff uh, comes from... Uh, pediatrics uh, so they study kids they also they like they study sort of healthy able children and then they also study things like uh, kids with cerebral palsy and, mm-hmm. and stuff like that because you know children learn to move uh, without being taught you know like we learn to walk without an, a, a, a lesson in walking we just kind of learn and so they study a lot of that stuff in that area and um so the model that I've used to describe the, the skill acquisition process for a long time now since since it sort of became evident to me was uh, of it's a four-stage model where you start with uh, unconscious incompetence, which I describe just as like you don't know what you're doing. Uh, you then move to conscious incompetence, which is this idea that you know that it's wrong, but you can't necessarily tell me why. You know, If you've ever been in the gym and done a rep and been like, Ugh, that didn't feel very good, but you can't identify the source of it, that's sort of what I would consider that level mm-hmm. where you, you have an intrinsic understanding that something's not right, but you can't necessarily identify it. Uh, then you move into conscious competence. You can do it, but you have to think about it. Uh, and then the sort of standard we want you to get to when it comes to pursuing performance is unconscious competence. It just happens. Mm -hmm. The analogy I use a lot is uh, driving. Almost everyone I've ever met has driven home from work at some point pulled up in their driveway and be like, fuck, I have no memory of how I actually got here. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you could have been driving for six minutes, you could have been driving for an hour, and sometimes you can just have checked out for that long because it's a skill that you don't really have to consciously think about anymore. It's a skill that you have not mastered, but you've certainly developed a level of autonomy that means you can be off with the fairies and have no conscious memory of what's happening. Mm -hmm. When it comes to pursuing performance at a high level, Especially in like the powerlifting realm, where you've really got to only be able to do it for ten seconds or something like that, that's I think the standard that we want to pursue is, is autonomy, is the ability to just do, not have to think about it. Mm-hmm. So it's <sighs>
1: interesting to to hear. Sorry to interject. No, no, no. So it's right. interesting to hear you you talk about this stuff um, because you know you obviously have a an interest in it and. Uh, I don't take offense to this, but I have no interest in it whatsoever. But you know, like this stuff exists, like this is psychological science and it does exist. And it's funny when you talk about it, like I hear you talking about it and I'm like, I can recognize that in practice across a a broad spectrum. The idea of unconscious competence is, is really interesting because on the one hand, it's like, you know, think about going into a a competition or think about going to a max attempt situation for you as a lifter or you as a coach with lifters um, you're you're hoping that you or your lifters are going into that situation without having to think. They're they're uh, you know taking the average of the the lifter that they've done in from training. So if they're doing a squat, they're taking the average rep from training, and it's just going to be automatic when they get under the bar. Uh, under the bar. The interesting thing about the whole training process is that I would say that we never truly reach unconscious competence because there's always certain aspects of technique as a system that we're trying to improve on to chase that impossible perfection. So it's like, uh, you know, it makes training sound cool because often I'll say we're looking for perfect technique, but we're always working on something. Therefore, we're never getting perfect technique. Um, and it's like the pursuit is this unconscious competence that's a bit of a unicorn yeah it's always interesting to hear it put in psychological terms it's just that you know anything to do with education when you when you have a practice like coaching that is so anecdotally based, that is so um, driven by experience rather than education to a large degree, when you hear the evidence for something like this come up and you're like, oh wow, I've actually it been to something. Out, I fig- yeah, I figured it out. It's yeah. actually all right.
0: Yeah, man. And that's that's exactly the case, right? I That's what, it fascinated me early on and it also for me, it it is an important discussion to have with people because it helps frame the discussion that we're having about learning and about learning the skill Mm. and those sort of things. Uh, And I think, you know, as a coach, the better the story that you tell, the more likely the person you're coaching is to buy into the process, which means they're more likely to get the results they're looking for. And ultimately, that's what it's about. Mm. Uh, So Quinn talked about... uh, The Fitz and Posner model, uh, someone Fitz and someone Posner, I can't remember their first names, Uh, but they have a book called Human Performance from 1967, which I ordered a copy of the other day um, to add to my ever-expanding stack of textbooks um, that I haven't read yet. (laughs) Uh, And they talk about it as a three-stage model, uh, cognitive, uh, associative, and autonomous same sort of idea that you're moving from thinking conscious effort towards autonomy and just moving uh and like you said i i don't think it's a firm like i often i the four stage model i've often represented as like a staircase Mm -hmm. uh the image that quinn used had uh Cognitive, auto- uh, sorry, associative, and autonomous, with arrows only going one way. And I don't think either of those is actually a very accurate description of the process, because, like you said, it's not like you're never really going to get there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is a fluid process that changes depending on the demands of the movement that you have. Right. So, the faster the movement, the more complex the movement, the higher intensity movements need to be more autonomous in order to execute them well. Mm. Uh, if you have to think about everything, every little step you're doing when you snatch, that's going to be an ugly, not very smooth and not very consistent snatch because it happens so fast that you don't have time to process that. Mm. Um, and so then uh, after framing the discussion about the learning process, Quinn started talking about uh, the difference between internal and external cues. Uh, so, like in a squat, for example, an internal cue would be like use your quads to drive out of the bottom position. Feel your quads, ex- uh, you know, pushing you up. Something like that, giving you a focus that is internal to your body. Uh, an external cue would be something like push the floor away from you, mm-hmm. where you're giving them uh, a reference outside of their body. And the science seems to suggest that. Uh, external cues are more successful in completing tasks. So they, they did a bunch of different studies uh, that Quinn talked about. One was like throwing darts. There was a, a few other things that they do like that and most of it points towards the idea that external cues are, are more effective. Um, I have since in, in the last week or so been playing around with, especially with newer people, trying to avoid talking about what they should feel in terms of their body and, and removing some of those internal cues and doing my best to describe things externally, right? Uh, and I've had some success with it, anecdotally. I think uh, it definitely depends on the level of the lifter. I think you and I can have a discussion about feeling a particular muscle or something like that because we have a common vernacular we can, uh, and at a common understanding And I think sometimes, and I've certainly been guilty of this, your attempts to describe what something feels like or what someone should feel while they're doing it can often be lost in translation. And we've talked about this before, this idea that the way I feel something and the way you feel something is likely to be a little bit different
1: Mm. Uh,
0: and that potentially you can avoid some of those pitfalls at least early in the process. By being conscious of the the phrases that you're using and the descriptions that you have, mm-hmm. and it's not, I don't think, going to drastically change my coaching approach, but it's one of those things that I don't think I'd spend enough time thinking about, mm-hmm. uh, and yeah, it's it's just been an interesting area of uh, the literature, both scientific and sort sort of more anecdotal coaching stuff to
1: explore, yeah, and talk yeah, for about. Sure. Um, before we, we delve a little bit deeper into the queuing stuff, I just wanted to say like back on the, the sort of conscious competence. One thing that as you were speaking came into my mind in terms of conscious competence or unconscious competence is like walking, right? Yeah. When, when you walk, it, it is truly like unconscious competence. You, your body knows how to walk. You just walk. But you, you can add conscious elements to that. You want to go a bit faster, walk faster. You want to walk in line with someone and match their steps. You have to you know, engage that consciousness again. Um, when we look at something like a squat or a bench or a deadlift, like a, a complex movement, not to say that walking is not complex, but it's unnatural for us to do a squat or a bench or a deadlift. Like it's a very unnatural movement that requires conscious effort. Um, you know, just like with walking in order for us to scale that walking to a, you know, a a faster pace walk or a slower pace walk, we have to re-engage a step lower with that conscious aspect, right? When we're looking at something like a squat or a bench or a deadlift, like one of the, uh, uh, what I would deem the hardest lift to master is going to be bench press because not only is it uh, unnatural, just like squat and deadlift, Uh, It's more unnatural than those movements because, you know, a squat and a deadlift pattern, even though the way we perform it when we lift weights is very unnatural compared to a true squat, like picking something off the floor, it's still a familiar movement pattern. Whereas Mm -hmm. lying on your back, arching your back, pulling your shoulders back, and holding that while you push something away is very, very, very unique to bench press. Yeah. Um, And so even once you can get, let's say, you know, uh, unconsciously competent about the idea of squeezing your shoulders back while you're pushing something away which is the hardest thing in lifting the master in my opinion yeah uh, there's still the conscious element of uh you know the scalability of tightness like for me even though I can do that without thinking I squeeze my shoulders back and push something away if I really want to you know push something heavy I have to re-engage with that conscious aspect and remind myself every single time if you think you're tight enough you're not get tighter you think you're squeezing hard enough you're not squeeze tighter Um, and if i allow that to become unconscious uh, what i'm allowing is complacency and what eventually complacency will lead to is no longer being able to be scaled it'll be like one constant tension that i have in my back which will never be as tight as if you're in my ear barking hey you're not tight enough squeeze tighter yeah and that's why i think that to, to a large degree uh, when it comes to these complex, unnatural movements like squat bench deadlift or even more complex clean jerks and snatches, there is always going to be an element of consciousness. I don't think anyone is ever truly going to be uh, unconsciously competent with those movements. So
0: I like I agree in principle, mm-hmm. but I also think that you're perhaps conflating uh, the process you have immediately before the lift and the thought process you have while you're lifting Uh so the example I often use is like the 410 squat that I've done I don't remember anything about that squat like the actual squat itself I remember Mm. walking to the bar I remember getting under the bar I remember unracking it and going fuck that feels pretty heavy and the rest of it there was no conscious thought to my memory right Mm that that So I think it's not that I want you to just fucking walk up to the bar and chat and shit, get under it and and squat, and your squat will just emerge and it'll be perfect and you're a god. Uh, But it's more that the conscious processes that you have early in the piece allow you then to set up so that when you're actually executing the movement itself, there is no conscious thought. Because like a max effort squat, you probably don't have time to think if no, you're no, squatting you're reasonably
1: is, well. right? So the setup is very conscious, but the actual downsy-upsy part... Yeah, the execution yeah, should be relatively autonomous. I prefer downsy-upsy part rather than execution. Yeah, I'm, I'm
0: down with that too. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I, I completely agree with you, but I, I think it's that there is a difference between the approach that you have from a mental standpoint and the actual execution of the lift. Yeah. No, yeah, no, you no can, that, that makes you total can, sense. And that, that's what I sort of consider to be the difference between conscious competence and unconscious competence is in conscious competence, you are like thinking the whole way down and the whole way up mm-hmm. as opposed to having a process and going, this is my process, and then just executing the process. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you've talked about, uh, and I fucking blatantly stole it, and for like maybe six months I credited you, and now I just consider it to be my own knowledge. Uh, but the, the idea of uh, your, the, your max attempt is going to be an average of yeah. every rep you've done in training, right? So the science that Quinn is talking about uh, relies on... An area of maths that I cannot even begin to understand. Uh, I tried watching some YouTube videos on it and it just fucking blew my mind. Uh, yeah. Dynamic systems theory. Mm-hmm. So it's describing systems that are nonlinear. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the sort of theory that we use to look at like weather patterns and economics and a bunch of other stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this area of motor control, motor learning uh, stems from that with the idea that human movement is a complex dynamic system. Uh, and so he talks about this idea of uh, attractor states. So mm-hmm. the theory is if you look at a graph of a dynamic system, what you'll see is like clouds of density of data. So you have points that the data is drawn towards. They're the attractor states. And what you're trying to do, uh, so it's visualized as, a, as like a line, uh, with, I'm going to fucking absolutely butcher just trying to describe this to audio, but imagine a line where you've, say, a trampoline mat and you've taken up the difference between a bowling ball, bending a trampoline mat, and a golf ball. Mm-hmm. Uh, the deeper that well is, so the more refined and... Uh, yeah re- refined and solid your movement pattern is the more uh or the less susceptible it is to change mm-hmm. to uh the, you know the the technical term they use in the science is perturbations mm-hmm. which is just the nerdiest word i've ever heard uh but essentially it, it's it's recognizing the idea that you've talked about in that The better you get at the process, the more ingrained it is, the more variability you then have in your ability to respond to a change in stimulus. So in powerlifting, it's like the change is obviously just weight on the bar, right? Mm -hmm. There's also mental, emotional factors, competition, pressure, all of those sort of things as well. Uh, But it sort of helps, I think, to solidify the understanding that the more refined that process is, the more answers you have to different questions so you have the ability then to adjust for oh, I like my execution was off and I shifted back onto my heels and you can save that whereas the less uh, less well refined the more novice level lifter would do something like that and end up just not being able to complete the task mm-hmm. um, and so it's sort of it lends I think uh importance to this idea of a, a process that allows you to develop a very deep well of uh, understanding of that particular movement, which then gives you the the range you need to be able to execute it at a variety of intensities, at a variety of tempos and all those sort of things. Mm. Um, the... The idea that he then uh, went on to talk about was the idea of like a constraints-led approach to motor learning. So the idea is that rather than me saying, "Okay, in order to squat, you're gonna do this with your feet, then you do this with your hips, and then this with your knees, and that's gonna be a squat," uh, the the way they describe it is more that you want or ideally what you're looking for is movement to emerge rather than be directed because allowing movement to emerge which you can do through a combination of uh, external based cues and constraints will then allow you to have a more solid movement pattern mm-hmm. uh, so and it's you know again it's it's how you and I pick assistance exercises it's how we pick variations right we look at the way that you move, we find what we consider to be the rate limiters in reference to the model that we use to think about what a good squat looks like, what a good deadlift looks like. And we find what we think is that sort of number one rate limiter and then we pick an exercise that helps you develop that. Mm -hmm. So if you're someone who struggles with falling forward out of the hole in a squat, then maybe I'm going to give you either like a safety bar squat or a front squat where you will be Overtly punished for falling further forward in the hole
1: because of the nature of the movement. I'll have to step in there because that's not actually uh, how I pick assistance exercises. So you're speaking for yourself.
0: Okay. So that's but how. That's, I how th- mo- that's how most
1: people pick assistance exercises. Yeah.
0: So that's that's how I think about it. I would be yeah. interested to hear how you think about it. Uh, I think there's a difference between picking an assistance exercise that is based on just developing strength in a particular muscle or muscle groups Mm -hmm. and an assistance exercise that is about developing skill in a movement
1: pattern. Mm. Yeah, I mean, like going down that road, if we're going to go down the assistance exercise road, is another episode. I think we probably revisit an Accessories uh, or assistance exercises episode and and reframe our thoughts because we did do one right at the start, but we've probably both grown and changed a lot oh, since, yeah, for we, sure. since we did that. Uh, but coming back to that idea of, uh, of queuing in that external and internal uh, queuing, I, I uh, can't repeat the language you used just then in terms of um, uh, what you were saying uh, about... Um, the the movement emerging that's what you said the movement yes. emerging right so uh, this is very similar and, and kind of echoes the way that I, I kind of uh, view queuing and, and uh, my beef with queuing in general um, and it's it, it's not a beef with, with people it's just we never get taught this stuff so um, if you if you do some soul searching and think about where most people or where yourself has learned that queuing it's like you read it you hear it um, and then you you create this bias where you try it right so you know you hear okay, pull the bar apart to get your shoulders tighter on bench. So you get on the bench and you pull the bar apart and you're like, hey, my shoulders feel tighter. It's like, no, your shoulders feel tighter, not because you're pulling the bar apart, but because you already know what tight shoulders feel like. So it's this uh, confusion between those internal and external cues. You are looking for an internal response from an external cue that you've been given. Uh, when we're teaching someone how to lift we can't uh, we can't assume that those internal cues are just going to work and so why are we talking about what your hands are doing on the bar when we're really trying to get this person to understand what to do with their shoulders um, so internal cues are, are probably not the greatest thing in general uh, when it comes to teaching the power lifts, the the other thing is that people there's a really common question i get when i do q a's and stuff like that it's like well how would you cue this it's like it's you're asking such a deep question. Like the cue is the tip of the iceberg. The cue is reflective of this really deep thought out process, this really deep thought out understanding of what the biomechanics are. Because cues that we use, like the cues that we're going to use to build a squat, I only use three cues to build a squat uh, or two even. Um, The cues that we use are related to our understanding of what the biomechanics should be. That's how a cue should happen rather than what the person should see, like as in what the coach should see. Uh, And too often people are talking about what someone should see and then cueing a visual change to that movement, uh, not recognizing that the breakdown or the shift in that movement is not caused by a lack of that thing. Uh, But because of, uh, uh, you know, a disintegration of the the biomechanics that should underpin it, if that makes sense. It's like, let's use the the idea of someone like coming forward onto their toes when they squat. It's like they're not coming forward onto their toes because they're not thinking about going back onto their heels. So don't say to them, sit back onto your heels. Like ideally, especially with squat and bench, deadlift is a little bit unique because there's no eccentric component. But with squat and bench, your cues should just tell someone what to do at the top, like at the start of the lift, and it should just stay like that. Yeah. P- pretty much. Like th- there's going to be some finesse to that to a degree, but you should just be setting, uh, you know, uh, I can talk you through the the script that I would use if I was going to teach someone how to squat. It would take about five minutes. But you're just setting yourself at the top and you're just holding that down and up. Mm-hmm. where your hips end up where your knees end up where your torso end up should be a byproduct of what you've set at the top yep um, and that you, there's going to be a bunch of people that hear that and they're like no nah, that's wrong because like what if you tip forward what if you fall back like uh, but you don't. You need to understand that before we give these cues we've probably gone through an explanation of a whole bunch of other things yeah. uh, and we've probably built this up in a uh, you know from the foundation up uh, to to, to form the ideas of what's going to happen with that person. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that's exactly it.
0: I think that's, that's the really interesting part about what separates someone who is an okay coach, who parrots cues that have worked for them, but then doesn't necessarily have a framework for what those cues actually mean. Mm -hmm. And someone who understands the process that is going into each part of that movement. I've certainly over the years tried to bring my cueing closer to the action that I want. So like you said, instead of saying, pull the bar apart with your hands, I'm talking about, okay, well squeeze your shoulders, you know, squeeze your shoulders down and together, however you want to describe that. Then the step I've taken recently is like, okay, instead of like, just squeeze your shoulders, I'm talking like, hey, imagine you've got a playing card in between your shoulder blades and you're trying to hold that there. Uh, and I think for...
1: So that s- works well if you're a magician. What I would suggest, and sorry to interject, what I would suggest is that most people are going to be motivated by money. So say, pretend you're squeezing $50 between your shoulder blades and if you drop it, I get to keep it. And then they'll squeeze. I saw a, uh, an
0: excellent display of parenting the other day where... Uh, a one of the guys from the gym sent me a photo of, or put a photo on Instagram, of his child and two others with their heads flat against a wall, and they all had five dollar notes between their <laughs> forehead and the wall. And the idea was that the last person to let, to pull away from the wall wins the money. He was like, "Best fifteen bucks I ever spent." <laughs> <laughs> Hours Which of silence. Just, yeah, that's that's my kind of parenting. Anyway, um, keep and, going. Anyway, Squeeze yeah. So. Shoulders. Yeah, I, th- I think that on the surface, sometimes those external cues can seem like what you're cueing is a visual representation. Like, hey, this is what I, you know, this is how I want you to imagine. Like, let's say squatting, for example, the other day, uh, coming out of the hole, uh, someone I was coaching was like tipping forward, like really quite significantly. And not at a particularly heavy weight, like it was light enough that they, it just shouldn't happen like that. So I said, okay, on the descent, think about there being a pane of glass in front of you and you're trying to like touch it with your knees but not smack your face on it. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, the squat looks better. It's not that I'm cueing you to actively sit into your heels or to not lean forward. So I understand that if you can find that midpoint and hold that position all the way down, that that's then going to facilitate the change on the way back up. Mm. Uh, and I think sometimes those cues get used in a way that is, like you said, just describing a visual change without realizing the context, and that's, I think, the thing that a lot of the people that ask, hey, how would you cue this or, or those sort of things, are missing the gap between... I know what the movement kind of should look like. I don't understand how to get it to look like that, but I also am missing this chunk that provides the context of why it looks like those two things in the middle.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, like I, I often, in my coach development course, I often tell people right at the start, like there are th- there's three levels of difficulty or three levels of coaching, right? And level one, the most basic level that any lifter in that's been lifting for more than five minutes is the easiest thing, which is look at a squat and be like, that doesn't look right. Knees are caving in, that's not right chest is falling forward that's not right like you know being able to identify a problem existing is fucking easy uh the next level of that is where is that problem coming from like, and that's that's sort of where you should start this this question so let's use that that example not your uh the individual you're coaching but the most common question is like how do i fix you know a good morning squat or whatever the first question shouldn't be how do i fix that what do i cue the first question should be uh, why is this happening? Mm. I mean, because the assumption that it's uh, the assumption, the underlying assumption when you say what's the cue to fix this is that it's uh, you know a, a common root cause, which just isn't the case. It can be coming from a number of things. So how you fix it and how you cue to fix it is going to be uh, related to what's going on. And again, uh, with the system that I use, with the I, I use a system that's based on what I call biomechanical rules. With a rule based system. Uh, the reason it's falling apart is probably due to something that went wrong from the start not something that went wrong in the hole or on the way up there's there's probably something that's gone wrong from the start or something that's uh, been missed from the queuing process uh you know, the, the idea, um, and fuck, we're going to pick this apart to death when we talk about assistance and I'm going to fucking blast this way of thinking because I hate it. The idea of like hips are shooting back. Therefore this muscle group is dominant. Therefore you need to train more of this muscle group. It's like your knee extension is too dominant. Your hip extension is too weak. Therefore do hip thrusts. Like you fucking what? Can you hear the words that are coming through the hole in your face? No, that is completely off way of thinking. That's like being like no, oh, I'm not going to even use that analogy. That's too brutal. Um, no, use it, please. No, do it. I can't. It's uh, not safe. Okay. Anyway, it it's it's not a great way of thinking. Maybe I'll drop it on the assistance episode. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes, look, that and that's the the
0: approach that you just see thrown around the internet so much from people who are relatively new or inexperienced because I don't think people have this conversation enough. This idea that. Like what's going on is more in the human body is more complex than just a result of the sum of the parts. Mm-hmm. You know, the, this idea that once you understand the action of a muscle, then you can just like, you can figure everything out you ever need. Oh, I miss my bench at the top and the part of the movement at the top is my triceps extending my elbows. So I just got to do fuckloads of tricep extensions. Like Yeah, maybe, but probably not. Probably uh, definitely and- not. Yeah, exactly, and that—that's a discussion that I don't think a lot of people hear because they want a surface-level, easy answer to a question that's actually deep and murky. And we've spent thirty-six minutes talking about and haven't actually really made any real progress. Mm. You know, like it's—I've spent the last fucking ten years learning this stuff because, and I still feel like I don't know anything sometimes because I'm constantly asking questions like, "Hey." Why am I saying that? What is what is my thought process behind that? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's the mark of someone who is going to be around in, in coaching and in that area for a long time. Because if you're not constantly questioning your own biases, you're not constantly questioning the assumptions that you have, you're probably not growing at any point.
1: hmm yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and like no no truer is that when it comes to cueing. So if, you, if you're a coach, even if you're a lifter that's self-coaching or a lifter that's getting cued by someone else, um, go through this sort of process when it comes to cueing, to using cues, analyzing cues, whatever it is. You hear a cue, you go to try it out. Stop trying to get it right. You hear pull the bar apart, you hear spread the floor, you hear brace into your belt. Stop trying to get that right. Think of all the ways you can screw that up. Mm. Um, it's, this is especially true if you're a coach because like if, you're, if your litmus test of whether a cue is good is you trying it on yourself, it's not good enough Yes. Um, because what you're going to find, you're going to try it on yourself you're going to be like, this cue works and you're going to try it on a lifter and you're going to be like okay, I've got confirmation, worked for that person tried <laughs> another one, got confirmation again this is the cue then you're okay. going to get one person that doesn't work after doing it on 10 people and it works perfectly and you're going to go that person is just not coordinated. Yeah, yeah. Rather than yeah, yeah. it's one hundred percent your fault. <laughs> yeah, rather than have I used a cue that only works for ninety percent of people because it's not actually talking about something global. Yes. Um. So, for example, uh, what's good examples here? Um. I think I've spoken about this on the, on the show before. Uh. The cue the cue I use for creating talk in your hips. So we have to take a step back. Um, the rule-based system that I used is that uh, when I say the rule-based system, biomechanical rules, what I'm getting at is like, John has a shoulder, Thomas has a shoulder, we both have a shoulder. Our shoulder works generally the same. We're different shapes and sizes, we've got different biomechanics, we've got different flexibility levels, stability levels, but ultimately our shoulder is the same shoulder because yep. we are a human animal, right? Yep. So we got to think, okay, in the context of squat, in the context of hips, we got to think, what is our hips role in? Um, rule number one in in my system is always where does the power come from in the squat the power comes from the muscles of your legs and your hips the only way we're going to access that power or the best way we're going to access that power is through a stable system and there's going to be a whole bunch of implications upstream and downstream that stem from the hips right what your knees are doing is a response of what's happening at the hips what your feet are doing what your ankles are doing a response often of what's happening at the hips what your pelvis is doing yada 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 of course all this stuff works together Uh, But ultimately the cueing is going to come to the central factor of what's going on at your hips What we're looking for to happen at your hips your knees do not go in or out your knees go back and forth They hinge right so if they're going in or out stop talking about your knees It's not knees out knees in it's nothing to do with your knees It's about your hips what we're ultimately trying to achieve with your hips during the squat is create torque To hold that torque all the way down and all the way up So when you hear cues relating to the hips uh they should ultimately be biasing towards this idea of talk so the cue that i use uh, for most people is twist your quads away from each other and trying to mm-hmm. get them to think about it high at the hip level you twist your feet into the floor you can get rotational talk at your knees it feels like absolute shit you twist oh, yeah, your knees I've done away from, yeah you twist your knees away from each other same thing twist your quads away from each other is a cue that pretty much every single person is going to be able to digest Of course, there's a whole bunch of layers of of coaching stuff that has to go with that. You need to understand where you need to put your feet. You need to understand, you know, um, guiding the actual process of performing that in the movement. Things like, you know, go slow down and slow up, hold it the whole time. There's going to be a bunch of language that's very carefully thought out. And when I said before, you know, I have a script, quote, an air quote, script for this stuff. I really do, and it's a very, very thought-out script that's been, you know, done over the years. And yeah, yeah, you, it's polished and refined because yeah. you've done it for a long time. Yeah,
0: and I have exactly the same. Like, it's our scripts are probably slightly different, but mm. the core uh, product is still the same.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, uh, what was I saying the the idea of using that uh, that global queue is that no one screws it up. Like, since I've been using it, I haven't had one person mess it up. Now, that's not to say that everyone then gets it perfect straight away because there is no magic cue that does that. Everyone's gonna have varying levels of uh, uh, coordination and stability. Like, my goal with a cue is to get someone to try so that we can scale that up. If they can't perform it properly in the squat, we can still scale it back. We can do it on a leg press. We can do stability work to start to build whatever's missing from that, that package. But uh, you know, from a trying standpoint, from an understanding standpoint, no one screwed that up. So for me, yep. it's at the moment it's been a hundred percent effective cue. Yeah. Um, and any of my lifters listening to this will be like, "Fuck!" I've heard this a billion times. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. And I think that that's the thing
0: that gets missed in certainly in any of the coaching education that I did early in the piece was this idea that like you can have a script you can have a process that can be very, very useful. But if you don't have then the ability to troubleshoot that process, well, then you're fucked. Mm. Because then, like you said, as soon as you get someone, you, like you could have an incredibly well thought out script, but the day someone walks in and just fucking has no concept of what you're talking about, you're up against a wall. And that's mm. certainly how I've developed some of my coaching expertise is like, oh, okay, well, I've described this four different ways and these are the four ways that I know how to describe it and I've had success with these before. What the fuck is going on? Mm. And then you just do your best to hide the fact that you don't know what's happening by just talking generally and having chit-chat while you're rapidly in the back of your head going, fuck, 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 how do I figure this out? Yeah. Uh, but it, it is a process of uh, experimentation and an understanding of, of the function of the system that allows you then to have... That room to troubleshoot and that room to
1: scale your discussion up or down based on the person you're talking about, hmm. right? Because like, sorry, I just want to reiterate, like it's so important that um, uh, that you, you do that we do highlight that context. Like, yeah, I say that that cue for me is 100 percent effective in my coaching system with the context that I provide yes. and the way that I deliver it, right? Exactly. If you go away and try it and you're like <laughs> this fucking bullshit, Thomas, fucking <laughs> idiot, it's like yeah, okay, well, you know. The, the you don't stuff have that the 45 minutes it. discussion before it
0: to <laughs> set that process up. Exactly.
1: Yeah, exactly, sorry. Uh, and
0: the ability to then scale that discussion as well because like, mm. you know, 45-year-old soccer mum who just came in off the street who just wants to look a little bit better in the mirror probably doesn't need to think so extensively about creating talk at the hip when they squat because the goal is not necessarily to squat the most weight the conversation is the same because the movement pattern is the same. You're still teaching them how to squat in the same way. You just don't necessarily have to emphasize it in the technical skill aspect because maybe that's not the thing they're pursuing. Mm. And that that context is then, okay, well, who am I talking to and what are we talking about? Because it's a different discussion if you're a powerlifter where the sport is be very good at squatting. Mm. Uh, versus a soccer mum where their sport is look better than the other soccer mums on the weekend, and they just want to train hard and be able to do things like that.
1: So I think I do once agree you, with the concept that you're saying, but I actually disagree in, in terms of the fact that I would uh, teach that soccer mum exactly the same as I'd teach Dylan Hell Regal or something like that. Uh, and so would I. It's sometimes the
0: language that I would use would be different
1: yeah so uh, the, the what,
0: process is the same
1: yeah yeah yeah. so what i'm saying is like m- a- again the language probably would be different probably not between a soccer mom and dylan helrigo uh, but if someone wants to go really really deep into like the biomechanics yeah. then then the language might be a little bit different however the 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 fundamental cues because they're the same animal are going to be the same for me um, yeah yeah sorry to interject but i just wanted to
0: no, no so, and I think that's an interesting point where you can then look at the difference between internal and external cues. So uh, like twisting your quads away from each other makes sense for someone who understands where their quads are. Uh, but if you've got a person who doesn't understand that, well, then having a cue that describes where your quads are and what your femurs do and how they relate to your pelvis isn't necessarily the most useful approach. Uh, so when I would
1: say for femurs and pelvis, I'd literally just if they didn't know what a quad is, I'd say twist your thighs away from each other.
0: Yeah, yeah, and that's fair enough. I uh, one of my favourite analogies to use for squatting to describe that action or the result of that action is uh, imagine you were taking shit in the woods, you shit on your ankles, you're probably doing it wrong uh if you like if you twist your quads away from each other, if you create external rotation at the hip, then you probably won't shit on your ankles, and you'll be doing okay and it it's a hundred percent successful. I've never had anyone <laughs> collapse their knees in while they're also thinking about trying not to shit on their own feet uh plus it gets a giggle out of people, which is also nice uh so yeah, I think it's it's something that doesn't get talked about enough from a coaching education standpoint is creating context that allows you then to have the, the language that scales up and scales down. Mm. Uh, and it's, yeah, it's a ever-expanding area of knowledge in my head that, you know, the cues I'm talking about now are very different to what I was talking about five years ago. And I imagine five years further down the road, they'll probably have improved again. Some of them will be consistent. There'll be some that I'll continue to use because they work. Mm. But there'll be others that have are a result of me expanding my knowledge and my understanding of things. And mm-hmm. I think that's the important part.
1: Yeah, for sure. For sure. It's about all I have to say at this point, yeah, I think. I don't have a great deal I want to add to that. Uh, we can keep talking forever, but I feel like we'll just start going around in circles. Yes, we
0: have a habit of doing that. Like this? Like your stupid fidget spinner. It's as I stupid. Sit here, as I sit here playing with a safety pin that's on my desk. <laughs> <laughs> um, excellent. Good.
1: Amazing. Yeah. Give us five stars, share us on Instagram, buy some uh, Prism coffee.
0: Oh, and if you feel like it, listen to my sexy voice on a different podcast. Uh, the episode of RX Radio I did with Jordan Cello came out yesterday.
1: Mr. Famous over here.
0: Yeah, it was cool to see my own name pop up in a podcast notification on my home screen uh, last night. Wait yeah, till all the cool. followers start rolling in. I think I've had two extra followers already. Whoa. So, uh, yeah, I'm
1: just... Sponsorships come at
0: me. (laughs) (laughs) DM for
1: collabs. (laughs) Excellent. Goodbye. See you.